Hello and welcome back, Supreme Court buffs. My name is Aaron Larson, and you are listening to the fourth installment of Landmark Decisions in the United States Supreme Court. The main focus of this podcast will be to highlight the key decisions that made the Supreme Court and the United States what it is today. In today's episode, we will be looking at the highly influential case Marbury v. Madison. Marbury is arguably the best-known Supreme Court case as it really establishes the basic rules for which the court will follow, even until today. As we saw in the last episode, judicial review was quite common in the state courts, and the Supreme Court looked to add it to their toolbox. This went horribly wrong in Chisholm v. Georgia, but gained little traction in Hilton v. United States. Marbury, though takes place under a completely different Chief Justice, John Marshall. Marshall was born in Virginia Colony in 1755, and while he did not receive a formal education in school, he sought out literary works by great English authors and philosophers such as William Blackstone and Alexander Pope. He was also tutored by Reverend James Thompson, who lived with the Marshall family and was a close friend. John Marshall served in the Revolutionary War with the Continental Army and eventually reached the rank of lieutenant before the war ended. After he was put on leave from the Army, Marshall attended the College of William and Mary in 1780 and studied law. He was admitted to the State Bar of Virginia later that year and was elected to the Virginia State House of Delegates two years later. In 1788, Marshall was elected to the Virginia Ratifying Convention as a delegate that would oversee the writing of the antebellum constitution, and in Philadelphia, he got to work closely with James Madison. George Washington took a shining to the young Marshall and eventually nominated him to be the attorney for the state of Virginia, where he eventually stood before the Supreme Court in the case of Ware v. Hilton. After holding a series of other positions, President John Adams chose Marshall to take over the reins of the Supreme Court in early 1801, just two months before President-elect Jefferson was supposed to take office. Marshall transformed the court in a way that still holds today as he added power to arguably the weakest branch of the federal government. While this worried many, there was not much they could do and Marshall continued to hand down landmark case decisions until he departed from the world in 1835. The case of Marbury v. Madison cannot fully be understood without first looking at the election of 1800. This election pitted incumbent President John Adams against his VP, Thomas Jefferson, as well as Aaron Burr, running mate of Jefferson, and Charles Pinckney running mate of Adams. The race was a runaway for Jefferson and Burr, but in this period, though, electors got two votes, one for president and the other for VP. One elector was supposed to hold back his vote for Burr in order for him to get second in the race and gain VP instead of president. This did not happen, though, and Jefferson and Burr were tied at 73 electors each. The race then went to the House of Representatives, where Jefferson was ultimately elected after much debate. 
The selection is typically shown to have a peaceful transition of power between Adams and Jefferson, and while this is true, there was a lot of scheming for the Federalists who had lost the White House and the majority in Congress. In the lame duck period between the election of 1800 and Thomas Jefferson's inauguration, the Federalists in Congress passed the Judiciary Act of 1801. This act added six new federal circuits with 16 new judges. As a final measure, they also added dozens of new justices of the peace up to the District of Columbia. Between December 12th and March 4th, President Adams, with the approval of the Senate, busily stacked the courts with his own people, mostly Federalists. If the Federalists could not control Washington through elected office, they would at least dictate the composition of the judiciary for many years to come. Although this election is known for its peaceful transition of power, as I stated earlier, it is much more complicated than that. Adams wanted his Federalists to still have control in the government, despite the fact they were essentially outcasted in the elections of 1800. This quick ad of the Midnight Justices, as they are so called for their last-minute appointments, infuriated Thomas Jefferson, the incoming president, and the rest of his party. It especially infuriated James Madison, who, as the main author of the antebellum constitution, did not expect or want anything this partisan to happen in the federal government. It seems that George Washington's worry of political parties fighting was finally coming true just four years after he left office. This is where the story of Marbury v. Madison really begins. Just two days before Adams was set to leave office, he nominated William Marbury to one of these contentious federal judicial seats. The Senate quickly confirmed him, as well as many other last-minute appointments. But there was not enough time for the commissions to be delivered officially, assigning them to their posts. Because the commissions were not delivered before the inauguration of Thomas Jefferson in 1801, Jefferson believed they were voided and instructed Secretary of State James Madison not to uphold the commissions sent to those like William Marbury. For months, Madison withheld the commission from Marbury, and because of this, in late 1801, he filed a brief with the Supreme Court under Chief Justice John Marshall asking them to issue a writ of mandamus, ordering Madison to deliver his commission. The main court's opinion, written by John Marshall, argued that Madison's refusal to deliver Marbury's commission was illegal, and that it was proper for a court in such situations to order a government official to comply with regulations set forth in the government codes. In Marbury's case, though, the court did not officially order Ma Madison to comply with the ruling. Looking at Section 13 of the Judiciary Act of 1789, Marshall found that it had expanded the definition of the Supreme Court's jurisdiction beyond what was originally set out in the U.S. Constitution. Marshall struck down the section of the law, which officially allowed the federal courts the right to invalidate laws that they found violated the Constitution. This set up the use of judicial review for the rest of the court's existence. Because Marshall struck down this part of the Judiciary Act of 1789, 
it meant that the court had no jurisdiction over the case and could not issue the writ that Marbury had requested, even though they had decided that Madison was in fact illegal in what he did. The case was decided by a decision of 4-0, to zero, with Marshall being joined by Justices Patterson, Chase, and Washington, as well as Justices Cushing and Moore taking no part in the oral argument or the decision of the case. Marshall's opinion was structured around three main questions. The first being, did Marbury have a right to his commission? To which the court answered, he had a right to it, but they could not force Madison to deliver it through a writ of mandamus. The second question asked was, if Marbury had a right to his commission, was there a legal remedy for him to obtain it? The court could officially issue a writ of mandamus and order Madison to send the final commissions, but the third and final question asks, could the Supreme Court legally issue such a ruling? Marshall argued that the Judiciary Act of 1789 gave them this jurisdiction to force Madison to comply, but Section 13, which deals with the original and appellate jurisdictions of the court, is actually unconstitutional, and there is no Supreme Court jurisdiction over what William Marbury is asking them to do. The Judiciary Act clashes with Section 2, Article 3 of the United States Constitution, which also defines the Supreme Court's original and appellate jurisdiction. Because of this, the Constitution comes out on top and voids the Judiciary Act. The case of Marbury v. Madison poses quite the dilemma overall. It established judicial review officially as the court struck down a big part of the Judiciary Act of 1789. But is this officially legal? Furthermore, it left a lot to be decided. They argued that Marbury was entitled to his commission, but could not do anything about it. Many recent Supreme Court justices have criticized Marshall's ruling, especially Felix Frankfurter, who wrote in 1955 that its official conclusion was much more than the case actually asked for. Many believed that Marshall was reaching to the conclusion found in the case in order to establish judicial review in the Supreme Court. It is also questionable whether Marshall should have recused himself from the case because he was Secretary of State under President Adams at the time the commissions were being sent out for other judges, not specifically William Marbury though. Should he have ever taken part in the case? In today's legal climate, the ruling would have been disputed because of a conflict of interest. Otherwise, it is clear that Marshall was eager to hear the case of Marbury v. Madison in order to use it to establish judicial review for the federal court system. Marbury v. Madison remains possibly the most important case in American constitutional constitution. Marbury v. Madison remains possibly the most important case in American constitutional law to date. To this day, the Supreme Court's main power of judicial review still lasts on the legacy of Marbury v. Madison. Coincidentally, although the case added judicial review to the official powers of the court, the Supreme Court did not strike down another federal law until 1857 in another landmark ruling of Dred Scott v. Sanford. 
We will visit this case in the near future, though. Further reading from today's podcast can be found on the Library of Congress website where court decisions are published, as well as in Akil Reed Amar's 1989 article, Marbury Section 13 and the Original Jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, which was published in the University of Chicago Law Review, pages 443 to 499. You can also read more about Supreme Court jurisdiction in Erwin Kemerinsky's groundbreaking research called Federal Jurisdiction, published as a sixth edition in 2012. Come back next week when we will discuss the 1810 case of Fletcher v. Peck and its role as a landmark case in the Supreme Court. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter under the username of at A-L-A-R-S-175 if you wish to leave me comments and questions on today's episode. I ask that you please follow, rate, and like my podcast so I can improve my skills and continue to gain listeners. Thank you for listening. All of the work and research done for this podcast is the sole property of myself, Aaron Larson, and shall not be downloaded or redistributed elsewhere without my express written consent. Thank you.